Well, I had worked with the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, Washington, and, and then I went on and I was working in corporate life. And all of a sudden the Pike Place Fish Market just blew up. And there was this fabulous book called Fish and the Fish Video, and it was just the whole thing. And if you look at the first fish book, it talks a lot about choose your attitude, make their day, a lot of interesting psychological principles, which were kind of the output, but not the process. The owner of the market said, we should really write a book about the process. And he and I together wrote the book about what he did to create the Pike Place Fish Market. Yeah, I was very confused. You know, we got this, uh, we got this grande that's really a medium. And what is a venti anyway? And this Italian bartender name for the coffee maker. And, you know, uh, so it was definitely a, a different world uh, than what I was used to. And, you know, I think at the time, Roger, when you and I were kind of talking about this and you were looking to approach Starbucks around it, Starbucks did not have a mindset around customer loyalty. They had a mindset around customer experience. In other words, they wanted to envelop the customer in an emotional environment that was very nurturing, and that was this kind of special, familiar place between work and home. Yeah, it was a wildly bizarre writing process. And uh, thank God for people who took time with me, like you're suggesting I took time with you. I mean, there were just so many wonderful human beings who stopped for a moment, caught a breath, did a little processing of what was going on from a leadership perspective and then shared those ideas with me and, and I did my best to weave them all together quickly in a book. And then from there, as they say, it's history. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Joseph Michelli. You are an internationally sought after speaker, author, and organizational consultant who transfers your knowledge and exceptional business practices in ways that develop joyful and productive workplaces with a focus on customer experience. Your insights encourage leaders and frontline workers to grow and invest passionately in all aspects of their lives. You're also a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Publishers Weekly, Nielsen Bookscan, and New York Times number one best-selling author. Your latest book is Stronger Through Adversity, World-Class Leaders Share Pandemic-Tested Lessons on Thriving During the Toughest Challenges. Joseph, it's my honor. Welcome to the show. Hey, Roger, thank you. I know you can't imagine that you left out an important detail in my introduction, given how elaborate it was, but I'm also a huge fan of yours, and that should have uh, gone to the lead line. I, I appreciate that very much, and um, I wanted to save this for while we were rolling, but I don't know if you remember, but you, at, at the time you wrote um, your Starbucks book back in, I think it was around 2006, is that right? Yeah, don't don't date us both. I know, I know. But I reached out to you because at that time I was in the customer loyalty space and we were actually trying to earn Starbucks business and you replied to me and and that actually propelled my interest and in career in writing. So I want to thank you for that. First well, I didn't know that I got, you know, I don't know that I get too much credit for it, but if uh, if that did it, I'll take all the credit in the world. Look, Thank God you went that way. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it was it was yourself and it was Jeffrey Gittimer because I was in the sales world. So the two of you, and this is what I love about these podcasts because we could talk about some of these 
things that happen in our lives that we normally wouldn't talk about. And, it, yeah. and especially to be able to, you know, have some time with you. I also was able to interview Jeffrey. So for me, it's really special. I'm not just saying. I that. remember his little red selling book and <laughs> uh, right. met him in those same days, right? So Absolutely. it's a small and wonderful world out there. Yeah, so I appreciate it. And then uh, we did meet once in the Orlando airport. I stopped you. Uh, this was probably 2009, 2010. You were very generous. You were, I think you were heading back home or something, but uh, we did meet in person. But it's really great to have you on the show. And I cannot wait to get into this because, um, you know, first of all, I'm just, I'm, I'm just so impressed by how quickly you put this together. Can you? There are a few talk? sentences in there that I wish I'd had a little more time to read. Wow. But, uh, I, it was 2020, and it's uh, if you get you get most of it right, you got to give yourself some credit. Yeah, it was a wildly bizarre writing process, and uh, thank God for people who took time with me, like you're suggesting I took time with you. I mean, there were just so many wonderful human beings who stopped for a moment, caught a breath did a little processing of what was going on from a leadership perspective and then shared those ideas with me. And, and I did my best to weave them all together quickly in a book. It's really amazing. When did you come up with the idea and how long did it take, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so just a quick little backstory. I was uh, I was under contract in 2020 to write a book about Godiva chocolate. I was with McGraw-Hill uh, book deal and uh, I've worked for Godiva for years as a consultant. Um, and I loved their CEO, uh, Annie Young Scribner, who came over from Starbucks, by the way. Um, and she was the CEO for, for Godiva. Unfortunately, in February, it became really clear that I wasn't going to be making it to the manufacturing plant out of an abundance of caution. And uh, other things were going to become problematic, like going and working a lot of the cafes in New York City. So uh, it was about March, early March, when I was on these task forces for my other clients and plenty of them trying to figure out how are we going to keep customers? How are we going to keep the lights on? And as I was in those task forces, I was watching these leaders approach the, this crisis of our time very differently. Some were still clinging to participatory management approaches, for example, and trying to get everybody's feedback before they made a decision. And lo and behold, they were, you know, boom, things had passed them by by the time they could even convene a meeting. There were others that were seat of the pants leaders. They were just kind of like, I don't, we don't have any data, but let's try something. And so I was struck by the, the diversity of approaches to this and started to talk to the leaders that I was close to and said, how are you trying to get your arms around it? What are your insights? What are your mistakes? And uh, they were kind enough to introduce me to others and others and others and 140 leaders later in about six months of writing time, uh, maybe five months of writing time, full time, 20 hours a day between interviewing and writing, we had the book out. Wow. So after the Godiva situation, is that when you made the decision, I have an opportunity here to kind of write it as we go through this? Yeah, so I, was, I was trying to go, but, but what am I going to tell McGraw Hill? You know, there was that. Right. And, uh, and I was also really struck by what I was learning in vivo in the crisis, right? And so I, it just came to me, maybe we should capture these insights and and try to give a template for the next generation of leaders. You know, you know, hopefully it won't be another pandemic, but whatever the challenges that we face in leadership, how do we approach them with the wisdom that was emerging from the pandemic? Ex-heavyweight champion Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's how you opened your book, Joseph. What is it about that quote that made you 
start that way because that it had a lot of obviously a lot of punch, a lot of impact right from that first sentence. Yeah, I, I think you know he's not my normal go-to quote maker, um, and obviously he's got a lot of baggage attached to him. So it was a little bit of a, a emotional moral courage to trust the reader to not get lost in all that and really just let that roll over you, right? And the reality was this was the most ubiquitous punch we all took. Some others might have put it that we were all on different boats, but in the same you know torrent sea, right? And and the reality was we did take a punch in our mouth and we all had plans. You know, if you look back to December, 2019, going into January, 2020, our strategic plans were sound and solid and cogent and we were in love with them. Uh, by March, they were of no relevance for many businesses and we were desperate to figure out what to do in the absence of that piece of paper that we had dedicated so much resource to. Yeah, and I, I tell you, I. As I said, the way it started out, and I, I actually thought about that, like that was interesting to choose Mike Tyson for that quote, but it, it totally makes sense. But I also wanted to mention something that I typically would never talk about, and that is your acknowledgments page. Hmm. Uh, being a writer, I, I do pay, pay close attention to that typically. I don't think the average person, probably, they probably don't, but it, I thought it was worth pointing out that you took time with this acknowledgement page to do it different than you ever did before. And I know that was purposeful, but can you talk a little bit about that and, and the thought that went into it? Because it, it was really, really classy. And um, again, it was almost emotional. Well, I mean, I think every one of your books, you know, you have so many people to be thankful for, right? I'm 11 books in or whatever it is now. And, and uh, I've thought I've approached acknowledgements every way possible. But there was something about this particular time when I think all of us were pausing and trying to appreciate what's really important and what's not. You know, I, I, uh, I know I went through and looked at all my subscription services and saw all the things that I had subscribed to that I didn't even know I had subscription services for, right? I mean, there's so much clutter that had gathered up. And I think when you take time and you really get deep into your gratitude for all the things that you have faced by all the things that you can't access, um, it really does get you more real. So, you know, I was definitely more in touch with not being able to hug, hug my grandkids. Uh, but the fact that I wanted to uh, was something that was so telling, I think, and, and warranted the significant appreciation for that. There's so many of those things I think that we take for granted. And, and even though I try to acknowledge people authentically, I felt like I was at a different gear. Yeah, no, and it came through. So take us back a little bit. You are a clinical psychologist, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Been a while. Don't hold that against me, though, as a business <laughs> author. <laughs> but give our viewers and listeners a little bit of your background. How did you go from that career into this wonderful, remarkable writing career? So I, I was really blessed. I mean, I, I was an, a system psychologist within the context of clinical. So I was working with marriage and family systems, if you will. I had a strong relationship with social psychologists and I was trying to understand the legal system as a forensic psychologist and, and the interface between those two systems. Um, when I went out and I practiced for a while, it really became clear to me that sitting one-on-one -on -one with a person in an individual room was not my forte. Uh, and I start working organizationally in a, as a psychologist in a hospital setting, both providing clinical services one-on-one, -on -one, but also more organizational psychology. And I became an organizational developmental specialist and helped that healthcare system merge with another healthcare system. So all of that systems focus kept pushing me 
to deal with larger organisms and entities and got to work with the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, Washington, where they throw fish. Um, in fact, the foreword of the book was written by the, the uh, former owner of the Pike Place Fish Market. Um, it, yeah, it, it really was a shift from the psychological tenants that influence individuals to the psychological tenants that influence systems and how do you ready a system for change and effectively succeed at changing in whatever parameter you're looking to change it. Hmm. And so how did that segue into your writing career? Well, I had worked with the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, Washington, and they, uh, and then I was, that, that happened in graduate school, in fact, and then I went on and I was working in corporate life, and all of a sudden the Pike Place Fish Market just blew up, and there was this fabulous book called Fish, and the Fish video, and it was just the whole thing, and so people were wanting to know more about how did the Pike Place Fish Market become what it, what it was. Um, and if you look at the first fish book, it talks a lot about choose your attitude, make their day, a lot of interesting psychological principles, which were kind of the output, but not the process. And so uh, with all the success of that, the owner of the market said, we should really write a book about the process. And he and I together wrote the book about what he did to create the Pike Place Fish Market. And then from there, as they say, it's history. Wow, but he planted the seed with you to write the book? Yeah, he felt like the, the authentic story had not been told. The source material had not been told. And so he reached out to me and we, uh, we made it happen. And it was a magical thing because immediately thereafter, you know, Starbucks was interested in me doing a, a book with them because they had copied many of the principles from the Pike Place Fish Market because the very first Starbucks store is literally about 2,000 feet away in the Pike Place Market region. And so uh, once you get into Starbucks, that opens up a whole, whole bunch of more doors than a little fish market could. <laughs> no doubt. Let's talk about that book a little bit because it is uh, one of my favorites. Again, I was in the customer loyalty space at that time. I, I believe you call it customer experience. But um, if, if you think back to the, I was in Portland in the early 90s and there was one Starbucks store downtown Portland right across from Nordstrom. And that was my introduction to customer loyalty. I walked in that place and the, the aroma and the music and this whole atmosphere that I never experienced before. Cause I, I came from upstate New York to, to go to school out in Portland. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and, and that was kind of in, in the back of my mind, my entree into customer loyalty, customer experience. I'm curious about your situation. What was it like for you when you first went to a Starbucks um, you know, cafe. Yeah, I was very confused. You know, we got this, uh, we got this grande that's really a medium and what is a venti anyway? And this Italian bartender name for the coffee maker. And, you know, I'm from a small town in Folgers with my, you know, my coffee drink of choice for a long time. Uh, so it was definitely a, a different world uh, than what I was used to. And you know, it's interesting you bring this customer success versus customer or customer loyalty versus customer experience distinction. You know, I think at the time, Roger, when you and I were kind of talking about this and you were looking to approach Starbucks around it, Starbucks did not have a mindset around customer loyalty. They had a mindset around customer experience. In other words, they wanted to envelop the customer in an emotional environment that was very nurturing and that was this kind of special familiar place between work and home. But they didn't really want to do any program that would build loyalty beyond the experience. So a loyalty card at the time, and I remember talking to Howard Schultz about it 
uh, early on. And he said, Joseph, we would not want to give away a 13th drink when we have all these people coming in, you know, at their high end users that we're using 28 times a, a month. You know, we don't want to dissuade them and, and you know, downprice our product to one thirteenth of its value, right? So if we gave the 13th away. And I, I just remember going, Howard, this can't possibly last forever. And he said, not, you know, no, we're not going to do it. And so it's really ironic that not only were you kind of ahead of your time in, in some of your suggestions to Starbucks, but, but that then they adopted their loyalty program and had to revise it several times thereafter, because I don't think they... They probably designed it as well, coming out of the shoots as they needed to. It's so interesting you, you mentioned that, and I, I wasn't planning to talk about it. I actually told the story uh, to, to our son last night at dinner that at that time, that very time, I had sent a proposal to Starbucks. And instead of the stars, uh, we had beans. So every time you'd come in, you'd earn another bean. And um, we basically laid out the program for them. But to your point, it was a little bit ahead of its time. I'm actually- A little, it was hugely <laughs> ahead of its time. I mean, Howard Schultz, who normally, in all due respect, is visionary beyond belief. Like, you know, I, I was privy to a conversation he had around, you know, we're gonna have a tall blonde one day at Starbucks, you know? Like he knew they needed to move into the blonde uh, space and that that would be the name of their breakfast uh, blend or their, their breakfast uh, offering. Uh, you know, to me, uh, it was crazy that he had that kind of vision. And I said breakfast, but I meant afternoon uh, drink offering. Um, yeah, it's crazy how visionary he was. But when it came to a loyalty program, a loyalty card, beans or stars or otherwise, he just wasn't there. Um, and then when they did it, you know, they made mistakes that I bet weren't in your proposal. For example, right. let, me just give you, let me give you one classic one. It was just a matter of frequency. So if I bought enough drinks, you know, if I bought enough $2 drinks, that 13th drink, if you will, what could be a $5 drink or a $7 drink, right. right? So it was not based on spend, it was based on frequency of use. And so that had to be modified in several revisions of the loyalty program. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's fun to talk about those old times because uh, it's great to see that Starbucks is, is continuing to thrive. And I'm sure with your relationship with them, it's been you know, just a wonderful ride. But they'd have been so much farther ahead, Roger, if they just listened to you. That's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> Thank you, you made my day. You made my day. So Joseph, let's get into this a little bit deeper. I, um, I chose a couple of chapters that I thought that, that stood out to me. I have not had a chance to read the entire book yet, but um, it's barely out. So thank you for reading any of it. I'm it's so barely great. out. Uh, Barnes and Noble was hustling to get it to me before today. But um, I like this. Uh, chapter two, put your mask on first. You talk about being selfless um, and, and the impact of that. Can you get into this chapter a little bit, give people a flavor of what to Yeah, I got to be very careful. The word mask connotes a whole different controversy these days. So uh, I'm not talking about face coverings. That's uh, for politicians and health, the health experts to talk about that. I'm talking about the, the symbolic nature of the mask that descends in an emergency during a flight and how the flight uh, safety crew tells us that we should place that on ourselves before we put it on uh, someone who's traveling with us, maybe a minor. Um, so yeah, really the bottom line is I was talking to people, leaders who were telling me there's so much writing on this. You know, I've got, you know, Stephanie Leonard, who's a, who's a president uh, for Marriott, 
said, Joseph, when am I supposed to sleep when I've got to think about all of the layoffs ahead and how to do that with grace and dignity and respect? The mission is so big right now. When am I supposed to sleep? Or, or Stacy Salvi uh, from Fitbit, uh, an executive there who said, you know, it's bad when you're a Fitbit executive and you realize you haven't gotten up until your Fitbit tells you to, that you got to, you know, you're not even adhering to the core principles of self-care that your product is designed to help people, you know, do. So, I, and I think we really saw leaders who forgot that there was no team if they could not take care of themselves to fight that battle, <laughs> stay with, you know, to stay with, uh, you know, Tyson's analogy, to be around for the later rounds, you know, you, you couldn't be around for the later rounds if you took the hit and went down because you were not caring for yourself. Right. Um, how, how were you able to put chapters to the different um, people that you brought on? So you had 140, right? <laughs> oh, gosh, don't bring back this trauma. The organization of that. Oh, yeah, no, this was not this was not fun. I mean, I love writing and I love assembling. I think of myself much more as an assembler than a writer. You know, Thoreau is a writer. He woke up in the morning. He had to write. That's not me. I'm a guy who loves seeing great things in the world and then trying to grab pieces of it, synthesize it, curate it, and make it accessible. That's my thing. The problem was there was so much going coming at me, but it was the same was true for leaders as it was for me as a writer. I think it's interesting how 2020 was emulated in what I had to process to write. So literally, I was arranging interviews and I was writing. So let's say we finished that chapter you just referenced. And all of a sudden now I interviewed you, Roger, and then you told me something fabulous about self-care. But now I gotta go and go, oh, that was so much better than everything I already have in the self-care chapter. So I gotta go pull something out of there and replace it with Roger, right? And even, and not that I would have begrudged it, it was just that, sure. that constant sort of, it's never done. Like, I think I've got it. And then some brilliance comes through that I have to bump. And then did I bump that person completely out of the book? I don't want to do that. They took the time. I got I to gotta go back in now and look at everything they said in that interview and find the next best thing. And where can I position it? It was, it was I make it sound so terrible, but what a great problem to have. No, and I was going to say, it, it, it's, it's really an honor, I think, uh, is the best way for me to describe it, what you did, because you honored the moment of that. And it's really, that's leadership, right? That's, if you didn't honor that, then the, the, the reader wouldn't have had it. The person who said it wouldn't have. Been. So that in itself um, must have been fulfilling for you to be able to, although it was grueling, uh, be able to really orchestrate it in such a way. And I'm sure you wish you had more time, but that you, you, you put the pieces where they belong. Well, I'm grateful for that. I don't think I've ever really given myself the opportunity to breathe about that and, and agree. And I will now because I think what I focused on most was all that stuff that could not get in, right? Like I was so frustrated by, but there's so much genius here, you know? And, and it, I don't know that it warrants, you know, edition 55 of the book, but I do think that what we have to appreciate in every interaction we have with people, there's so many nuggets of wisdom that people share with us if we're willing to listen, if we're open to understanding. And I think there's a bunch in this book around listening and understanding. And if anything, the more I listen to people, the more I, I just was in awe of the human adaptivity and resilience. It was, it was crazy exciting to hear what people were doing across business sectors, across the globe, 
Um, so it, it was truly an honor on my part. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. You talk about listening, um, awareness, being present. We're all so busy. And it seems that, at least for me, when I, even, through, even in an interview like this, um, I, I know there's questions I want to ask you. So I'm trying not to go there. I'm trying to really be present with what we're talking about, but it's hard. It, it's hard for people. But the more I attempt to do it, I feel like, and, and when you bring it up, when other people bring it up, it actually helps bring me back to that. But talk about the importance of leadership with listening, being aware, being present in general, um, not being on your phone when someone's you know, in your office talking to you, uh, really listening to people in, in their words. You know, it's interesting because uh, I, I try to listen with my eyes and with my ears. So the other day, for example, Roger, I mean, this just kind of goes to show how spontaneous all this is. Someone was, someone just wrote in LinkedIn that their, their team was reviewing one of my books, The New Gold Standard about the Ritz-Carlton. And they just wrote that as a, a post. And I simply wrote and I said, wow, thank you very much for doing that. I'd love to learn what you're gaining from it or how I could have made it better. And uh, they wrote me back and I listened a little to that. And I said, you know, I'll tell you what, I would love to just pop in on your book club if you ever want me to, because uh, I would love to learn and listen more. Uh, by the time it was all over, not only had I popped in on their book club, but the leader of that organization had asked me if I might consider doing some consulting for them. Now, never in a million years was I listening so that I could consult for this particular group. I was listening to learn. And I think it's in that taking an interest in others that you become interesting to others or you become valuable to others. So to me, I saw it with leaders all the time. You know, if you're talking to a Brian Cornell, the guy just would ask more questions than I could ask, right? I mean, he's just so interested. And, and just even now in this interview, you're asking questions about things that I'm sure aren't exactly what you had scripted. And probably the more interesting things we'll talk about will be the things that come up spontaneously. 100%. And, you know, everyone, you know, not everyone, a lot of people today talk about that and the authenticity, the transparency, being yourself. The easiest person to be is yourself. Um, so why try to be someone else? But the lesson um, that, that I also caught in your last comment was that when you, when you observe opportunity, when you observe, but also take action, right? So you, you could have stopped at the first message or the second message, but you were curious, you took action. And I think that in itself is a lesson for people to go with your gut. Like, don't give up. If, it, if, if, you're, if something's pulling you to do, take an action like that, you never know what's going to come of it. Don't have the intent that I'm going to be a consultant for this, but opportunity seems to happen, at least for me, through those types of situations. And, and I, I believe that's a really good lesson that you just shared. Well, and, and as you, you know, said it, I, one of the things that, that became very clear to me is that it's in our asking out of authentic curiosity that we listen and learn, right? I mean, it just, it's all about being curious. It's that growth mindset. It's the assumption that I don't know and that everyone is a teacher with a lesson. And my job is kind of like Michelangelo, you know, the, the, the sculpture is already in the piece of rock, right? He just has to get rid of the extraneous pieces. We have to kind of find that story through listening. We have to get rid of the extraneous pieces, get to the core of the art. Mm, I love that. And I love Michelangelo, who's 
right there. Wow, look at that. How cool is that? See? Yeah. Spontaneous. Yeah. He is uh he's definitely one of my favorites. Okay, uh chapter nine. Bring yourself to work. <laughs> Man, was I stretching for a title or what, right? No, it's a, it's a spinoff of the bring your kid to work day or bring your pet to work day. You know, maybe we really should bring ourselves to work day. And I don't mean that in the physical sense of our body. I think it's in the fullness of our character. It's in our vulnerabilities. It's in what, we, what we're interested in. It's Brene Brown to the 10th degree, right? It's that authentic, vulnerable self needs to show up. And um, I think we used to get away without doing it and we could operate from the gravitas of our boardroom, but many of these leaders were in their bedrooms, right? <laughs> their work was already brought to them. So uh, they just had to open themselves up a little bit more to, uh, to their authentic self. Great. What do you say for folks who are trying to work their way up in an organization? Maybe they're the barista, maybe they're you know a branch manager at the credit union, whatever it may be. Um, and you know we don't necessarily have to talk about age, but no matter where they are, what advice do you have on how to show up at work in order to put yourself in a good position for growth? Uh, see yourself as in helping other people business, no matter what you do. I mean, if you serve coffee, you're still in the helping people you know, business. And if you see yourself in the people business and the improving the lives of others business, and you dedicate yourself to the art and craft of being able to do that with whatever you know products you have available, but the internal tools to be present with, identify the need states of, the eagerness and zeal of finding ways to deliver it as they want it delivered. The more you perfect the arts of service delivery and attention to detail and assessment of needs, the more successful you are. I mean, truly, I, I am a believer that you rise up because you increase the value you have. And that value is a function of the skills you develop in being able to transfer your talents into value. So yeah, so to me, it's always the same. When, whenever somebody asks, I'm saying like, how much are you serving and who are you serving and how good are your service skills? And Joseph, when you're talking to leaders say about this very topic, are they giving you examples of stories of, of people that they've recognized in the organization that were being a little bit more of service than, than the next guy or gal? Um, oh, they said, you know, the beauty of the crisis was there was so much need that people who didn't have titles just dove in and you suddenly said, that's my leader. You know, like, I don't know about the other person who I can't seem to get a hold of or they're, you know, they're analyzing things to the point of paralysis. My leader is the one who's, who was reaching out and saying, how can I help you to team members or to even making connections with team members that were not technically part of their close team uh, out of concern or care. Um, yeah, that's, that's the stories I heard. I heard all kinds of stories of people who took that extra step in ways that confused the leader almost. Wow, look at that, that servant heart. Uh, right. Manifest. right, and staying on that topic a little bit, if someone is still stuck right now listening to this and they know they should be doing more, but they just haven't been able to break out, whether COVID or not, like if they're just having a hard time getting out of their own way, any ideas what, what these folks can do? Yeah, I think you have to almost think about the end of your, your professional career 
and realize that you will have a very small shadow that you will cast because your fear will have limited the amount of light you radiate, right? And so for me, it's a matter of saying, who do I wanna be? Okay, maybe I'm not that today, but if, if I made progress, if it were possible, just possible, and what would I want my end of my career to be? And as soon as I start to realize I would want to have more impact in the lives of X, Y, and Z, I would want people to be able to see me as having done something positive in these ways. Then I would say, just what one little thing might you do now, in the next minute, the next hour, that would get you closer to that? You don't have to go all the way there. We just know that's your end state, your desired leadership legacy. Between here and there, what is that one thing that could get you a step closer, just an inch closer? I think of it in, you know, getting penalized in football half the distance to the goal line, right? Like you can never quite get to the goal line because you're only going to get penalized half the distance. But if we could just take a small inchy step toward that goal, we are getting there a little incrementally at a time. And after a while, we build some confidence, some, some energy, and we notice that our stride is longer and our steps are bigger and our impact is bigger. And before you know it, we look back in a career and we go, oh, that was all I aspire to. Look at how much more I achieved than even I could have dreamed back in the day. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. I wanted to ask you about self-care. How does that play? So again, I'm just trying to go through some of these scenarios because you have so much experience talking to all these leaders and wonderful, you know, books that you've written. We're trying to help people here. Like, you know, what, if, you know, if someone's not taking care of themselves first, how can you be a leader, right? I mean, does that come up with, in your discussions with leaders? Are they all taking care of them? It goes back to the mask. You got to put that on yourself first before you can help someone else on an airplane. God forbid there's something happening. Well, and then I'll tell you, I mean, I, I, on one hand, say take care of yourself. And then I admit to working 20 hours a day writing this book, right? So let me just talk about my hypocrisy before okay. I get very far into this. Right? I think all of us as leaders lose our perspective on self-care at times. Uh, sometimes we lose our perspective on caring for others and we get very lost in our own our own egos and our own desire to be acknowledged for our accomplishments as opposed to our life balance. So there are a lot of challenges inside of the head of a leader. Some of that is there because our parents kind of communicated to us that the, we have to prove our worth each and every day and there is no time for idle recreation, uh, right? We have to be on the, on the grindstone. Other times, you know, we have been raised by people who have big egos who, who say to us that we need to dominate and, and achieve at the expense of others. So there's a lot, I think, that we all have to be self-aware, right? And, and if you don't have self-awareness, you can't even build an action plan to try to keep your life moving in a way that makes you more successful tomorrow. Um, and elevates the lives of others in the process. So to me, it, it isn't like, you know, we, we're always self-caring and we're always in balance. We are on a journey that causes us sometimes to go too far and we have to hit the pause button and retreat and re realign and move forward. But I think you, what, what I see anyway is that I'm much more aware now when I start crossing into the danger zone um, sometimes I listen, sometimes I go too far in and then I have to pull back out. But if you're as a leader, don't even know it, then you got big problems. And if you haven't developed a community around you that will help call that to your attention when you otherwise are blind to it, then you have other problems. And I think we have a whole section in the book about, 
you know, reaching out, getting off your islands, you know, the John Donne poem that no man is an island. I kind of rephrase it to make it less gender specific, you know, no person is an island unto themselves. And so you saw lots of leaders who sometimes were being pulled back to self-care by their network of colleagues. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no. And again, that answer, I didn't expect you to say that, but it's very real. Like we, you know, I try as well to, to, you know, better myself, listen to a podcast, read a book, but there's days or weeks, you know, like when I was finishing my last book, I was just absorbed. And then, you know, like, okay, that, that project's done. Let me get back on the train and, and, and do it. So yeah, I appreciate that very honest answer because that's life. No, no one's in that, that I know of zone every single day, um, day in, day out. But you know, if you're better than you were five years ago, right? Like I know I am better. Five years ago, I was way crazed about work. Now I'm just crazed about work. <laughs> right. In a good way. In a good way. Yes. Okay. Uh, there was one more chapter here. And by the way, folks, you have to grab this book. Uh, I'm going to show you again. Stronger Through Adversity. I picked it up at Barnes & Noble. Okay, chapter 15, Pivot with Urgency. I love this. Yeah, gosh, you know, not only were your plans of no value when you got punched in the mouth, if you were unable to move your organization in the direction of priorities uh, with speed, you were done. So a lot of organizations that hadn't invested in technology couldn't make the pivots as quickly as those that had already done the foundational work. But you had to get your people very clear that in order for us to survive, here are our top three or four things we absolutely need to do. I'm going to get out of your way. I'm going to provide you the resources. You know, I think leading is always about creating the vision of the urgency, right, in this case, um, along with making sure that you either enable or you at least don't impede the progress of those you're asking to help you get there. And so the innovation that I saw from organizations and leaders inspiring at this, this last year was remarkable. Hmm. Are there any companies that you know of personally that didn't make it? Uh, yes, none that I've worked for, thank God. I mean, I really truly uh, was worried, but yes, there are several businesses that our colleagues of mine worked for that do not exist today. They're mostly mid-sized companies, um, you know, but, but suffice it to say those leaders, their managers and their frontline workers are all either unemployed or absorbed by, the, by others that did thrive. And in, in those examples that you know of and just gave, were any of those lost due to lack of leadership? Yeah, I think one in particular, um, what had happened for the organization is that this leader had always been autocratic. Um, and, you know, let me just be really clear. We, you know, we are talking in a time when there's a lot of political unrest around leadership. So everything I am saying has no application to politics. I mean, that's not my thing. And in fact, we didn't interview political leaders for this book because I think there's an overlay of self-preservation or electability or a variety of other things that I was not getting at. This particular leader in a business sense did not care about anything other than being right. And when they were wrong, 
as many of us have been throughout the pandemic over and over again, they did not reach out to others to get input, advice. They didn't listen to their teams that were closer to the ground on it. And invariably they ran their organization right into the wall that, uh, that COVID was. And it sounds like they stayed on that island. Yeah. Intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, righteousness is a powerful force and they were more interested in that, which is really ironic because I think one of the things we talk a lot about in 2020 is a lot of people said, I don't know. Um, and a lot of people said, I'm wrong. Uh, Jeff Daly is one of my favorites in this book. He's the CEO of Farmers Insurance. And he, you know, he said to me, Joseph, you know, when my, when the, my leadership team came to me and said, we're, you know, we're not going to be traveling as much. We can get premiums back to auto insured. I said to them, hey, you're right, but let's keep some of those premiums just to shore up the, the coffers. We're in good shape, but I really don't know how long it's going to last. Mm -hmm. Next week, USAA comes out with a rebate to, uh, to their auto insured, and he was a fast follower. And he immediately said to me, Joseph, I was wrong. I was wrong, and I told my leadership team I was wrong, and then I told my entire organization I was wrong. Wow. I should have listened to my team. We should have taken care of our customers. Everything else would have been okay. Uh, I'm glad we fast followed, but I was wrong. Well, his net promoter score, his internal net promoter score. So if you know net promoter, it's when customers, you know, will they refer you? The employee net promoter is, will you refer farmer's insurance to your friends and colleagues if they're looking for a job? His employee net promoter score went up greatly, as did their productivity after that admission. I think that the guy who I'm talking about is the contrast, never said he was wrong never admitted to any shortcomings and never solicited input with an open, curious mind, bringing it all around. See how I did that? You know, with an open, curious mind. And so again, true leaders admit when they're wrong. Yes, including working too much or mm -hmm. you know, all of the things that we need to role model for others to tell them that. Okay, so I know this book was chaotic, probably unlike any other book you've written. I'm sure I could say that easily. Uh, what was your favorite part about it? You know, it's a really weird part. I wrote a book, I wrote a chapter called, uh, you know, move uh, front, middle, back. And uh, it's kind of weird because it was the first time I ever remember using a metaphor from the animal world to describe human leadership behavior. And it was one of my favorites. It was like, I don't know where this came from, but I was thinking about wild horse herds and, and somehow I remembered that there was a, this alpha sire that, you know, that would, would be in the back of the herd and the alpha mare, she would be in the front of the herd. And, and that there was a lot of horses that shaped the herd behavior. And I start thinking, wow, this is really a metaphor for great leadership in an adaptive time in that we don't have three designated roles for leaders. We have to glide from the front to the back to the rear. Sometimes we have to create the vision and say, follow me like the mayor does. Sometimes we have to be in the back and kind of nudge people along and say, kind of speed up a little bit. There's danger behind us. And sometimes we need to have, we just need to fall into the pack and never ask our teams to do anything we aren't willing to do. And I'd gotten enough examples of all those things that this metaphor seemed to work. And I'm like, wow, it's one of my favorites. Now I think I'm gonna write books about animals. That's <laughs> I love it. But that brings me to, actually, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because I, I help people write books, their first book. I'm just passionate about, I, I wasn't trained to do so. I just, I've done it a few times. So I have my method as you have your method. And there's, to me, there's just so much gratification helping someone get that done. So I know what it did for me. 
Anyway, one of the things I talk about, which one of my writing coaches taught me was something he called the creative unconscious. And that is as a writer or as any artist or anyone for that matter, our minds, our, our unconscious mind will work with our conscious mind to give us ideas, thoughts, examples like you just gave that went into your book about the hurt. Um, is that something you think about? Is that something you believe in? Again, it's just a curiosity question. Didn't have a plan today. Well, first, I just want to say, I think you are really, you know, I know your your value in helping people write books. So I think you think about this a lot more than I do. <laughs> and, and I would rely on your insights on this far more than I. I do know that I can overthink things and that there are times I just need to step away. And when I kind of clear the, put a little sorbet in my mental palate, if you will, then things get organized more cleanly. So I don't know that I have the the words for it or the process to make it happen. I just know that as I start to get jumbled, I need to step away, not fight through it. It's kind of like putting a screw in the wall, right? Like if it, if it starts meeting resistance, you kind of have to back it off a little bit. You can't just keep torquing it down and expect it to drive. Right. But uh, do you get ideas that come to you in the middle of the night or you know, if you're taking a swim in the pool or whatever that you say, oh, I have to write that down before I forget. Yeah, the swimming in the pool, writing it down is a little bit of a problem, but yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Anything else about the book that you would like to cover that I have not touched on? I would just simply say that we're all facing adversity in our lifetime. And my goal would be for people to come through that adversity better than they were before they encountered it. So for everybody who wants to go back to 2019 and act like 2020 wasn't there, it would be a real waste of 2020. 2020 was a tragedy for many, many people. And the least we can do is to benefit from that adversity by coming out the other side stronger, not just the same as we were going in. So I hope you'll take the time either through this book or through your own process to reflect on how has adversity made you stronger? What lessons have you learned uh, so that you can be a better leader, a better writer, whatever it might be? Wonderful. So I have to ask you, what's next? Are you thinking about- Wow, that's, you know, so first off, as me, as soon as this book got done, suddenly Godiva said to me, hey, let's get that book done now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, I have nothing left. I gave it all. Um, but as it turned out, uh, that CEO went on to another job. So now we're on pause on that. So it could be the next Godiva book. Uh, it's their 95th anniversary this year. Uh, and if not, then I have a couple of other ideas. And then I'm wondering, what, what could I partner with Roger Brooks on? That'd oh, wow. Now that would be a dream. That would be a dream. We'll, we'll figure something out one way or another. You know, I think the key is that magic happens when you don't overthink it. And so let's see what, where it goes from here. I'm so grateful for this time. I have endorsed, I think it was your first book. You did, The Power of Loyalty. Yeah, yes, and did. I thought it was just flipping brilliant. And, and yeah. so uh, if nothing else, maybe I'll, you know, maybe 2021 or 2022, at least I'll write another endorsement of one of your books. Well, that would be wonderful. I would so appreciate that. Joseph, what advice would you give to first-time writers? As I mentioned, I love to help people write their first book. You've been through it, obviously, it propelled your career. It changed everything. What advice do you have for them? Well, yeah, I think I probably make 100 times more than I was making in business because I'm a writer. 
but that's not true for everyone. And the reason you write is important. So for me, originally, my purpose for writing was to share the story of someone who I admired and adored, Johnny Okayama. Uh, and he wasn't a writer himself. So I really wanted to share that message. Um, but I think ultimately writing is a lot about not editing, <laughs> at least not at first. You know, writing is a lot about just getting words on paper, getting ideas on paper. And then you can share those with other people and get their reactions and learning what part of your writing really makes a difference and what doesn't. Um, and then honing the craft over time. But the biggest problem I see is that people have a book in them. They just never write anything down because they've been told, like many of us who are not, who've been told we can't draw things, they've been told they can't write or they don't believe in themselves. And so my message is just get it on paper. We'll worry about the details later. Thanks so much for sharing that. Two last questions I have before I let you go. First one, I try to ask every guest these last two questions. If you were to take out your cell phone and call that 20-year-old Joseph, that young guy, what advice might you give him? Yeah, I, I think that guy was pretty lost in his head of ideas uh, and probably was missing the humanity of life around him. So, uh yeah, I think it's get out of yourself and get out of your ideas and stop trying to be so cool. And, and let's just connect with people and the rest will work itself out. <laughs> I could relate to that. Um, and Joseph, last question. At the end of the day, you still have a lot of work to do. Uh, but at the end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be? What kind of mark do you want to leave here on this earth? Oh, this is the easy question. The last one was pretty hard, but this one's pretty easy for me. I want them to say that he served those who served well. Uh, I don't have enough bandwidth to serve everybody. I wish I did. Uh, but when I hear somebody who's reading the new gold standard, right, and they're trying to get ideas out of it so they can be better at service, then I would jump up to the opportunity and I say, there's somebody who's got a spark. They've got some drive. They're trying to grow. Joseph, this is your person, you need to reach out and serve them. I hope that at the end of my career that people will say, hey, Roger, you know, wanted to make the world better by creating a loyalty program that Starbucks could grab onto. Um, and that I took the time, um, but I probably had missed as many of those opportunities as I've gotten. And so I just got to even be better, but I hope my legacy will be that he's someone who served those who served well. That's awesome. Well, I so look up to you. You have been a, a mentor from afar. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Welcome to the American Real Family. If people want to reach you, best way is your website, josephmichelli.com. Yep. J-O-S-E-P-H-M-I-C. Sounds kind of like Mickey Mouse. M-I-C, hell, and then the letter I. Yeah, M-I-C, awesome. I. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you so much for doing this today. Congratulations on the book. Best of luck. I know it's going to do awesome. I'm going to tell everyone about this and we'll get this out there. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a mutual fan club. So I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here and thank you for taking the time to share the book with your audience. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. 
If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.